Okay, rediscovering the lost message of the gospel. So this will be our final teaching on on, on uh, becoming the church Jesus built. And, you know, in Matthew 16, he said, I'm going to build my church. You're not going to build it. I'm going to build it. And we've talked about this a lot through the years. But we looked at some different things. We looked at how the foundation of the church is is a revelation that Jesus is the Son of God. There is no other foundation, but Jesus is the Son of God. You know, it's not the Pope, it's not the pastor, it's not the bishop, it's Jesus is the Son of God, and He is the Messiah, and He's the one. And so then we looked at also unity, and the power in unity, and 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 Jesus says, if any two come together and believe and agree, He says, what you ask, you'll get. And of course, that presupposes relationship with Him. You you know, if we have relationship with Him, if we delight in Him, He's going to give us the desires of our heart. So if we have his desires, he's going to give us his desires, right? And we can't be asking for fleshly things. You know, James, I believe it's James that says, you have not because you ask not. And when you ask, sometimes you ask with wrong motives. So we don't expect an answer to those things. They're also being double-minded. We also looked at, at the, the victorious Christian and how we are, we are created. The church is victorious. The gates of hell will not prevail against the church. Right? I mean, that's it. That's it. The gates will not prevail against the church. But what about the, it's the true church? There's the church at large. There's an organization. Then there's a remnant called the true church. And that's the one that Jesus is building. That's the one he has built. And that's the one that the gates of hell will not prevail. And then we looked at prayer and the power of prayer. And um, last week, Pastor Thant ministered. It was so great. And if you guys weren't here, uh, it should be up on the website. Just, you know, get that copy and listen to it. It was really a good message, really good message. And we appreciate him sharing with us last week. So, so, uh, so why do I say the lost message of the gospel? Why do I say that? Because I, you know, I spent 25 years in, in the analytical side of chemistry and I'm very detail oriented. I'm very results oriented. I like for everything to balance, you know, one plus one equals two and every equals three. And if it does equal three, then we've got a problem. We need to go back and find out why it's equaling three and not two. So, so, you know, there's many times when we would have these big reactors and we would, we would create 50,000 pounds of this product to go to someone. And, and so we would have these 50,000 pounds of product when it was all said and done, then we would analyze and it would be out of spec. So what did we do? We either had to rework it or discard it. And so I think that's kind of what we're seeing in life and in, in the, in the church. We've got all these numbers sometimes, but are we really meeting spec? You know, and, and we have to think about, you know, God does everything practically, doesn't he? You know, there's a practical aspect to ministry. There's a practical aspect to life. And so many times we think we're going along fine until we do the final analysis. Everything looked just perfect. I remember many times, what could have gone wrong? Everything went so perfectly. All the numbers were there. And then all of a sudden, there it is out of spec. And so we had to go back and, and kind of, you know, re- reinvent the wheel, so to speak. But see, what we had was a volume, but not quality. We had volume, but not quality. And I have to say, I believe that's where the church is at today. We have a lot of people that say they're believers. And I'm going to give you some statistics that have shocked me this way. I've done some research this week on, on some of these numbers. But, but um, when we look at the numbers in our group, whether it's church or whether it's, a, you know, a counseling group or whatever, you know, we can have very large numbers, but are we making any effect on the people? Are we changing the people's lives? See, if you came today and nothing changes, you wasted two hours, except for fellowship, I mean, I guess, or whatever. But, but I'm, I come, I'm, every time I encounter God, I expect something different. To, don't you? I expect things to change. I expect differences in my life. 
you know, and, and we can look at colleges and universities and we, and we've got, now we've got two in college and, and another one getting ready to go next year. And, and, you know, they're just, you know, the, it's so com- competitive. And so we see all these kids going to colleges and all these universities, but are we cranking out good kids? Are we cranking out kids that know anything? Questionable. Questionable. Are we, are, uh, well, I'm not going to go there. Okay, so we always have to judge the process. And so this is just, I'm giving you this little schematic here many times, but it works so much just in life. And Jesus says in Matthew 28, 19, this is, this is what you and I are called to do. Every one of us are called to make disciples. Every one of us are called to make disciples. You say, well, I thought that was the evangelist. No, that's the believer. Every one of us are called to make disciples. Well, I thought you had to go to seminary. No, you don't have to go to seminary. You just have to know Jesus. You just have to have an encounter with Jesus. You don't have to go to seminary. You, I mean, I remember Freddie, uh, Freddie Gage, was that his name, that came to, to Kannapolis years and years ago. He was the uh, crossing the switchblade main character. And he said he just got so excited because he just met Jesus. And he, what did he do? He started out on the gospel trail evangelizing. And he said he talked about how Moses was in the ark and, you know, and Noah was in the whale and all this. And he said he didn't know it wasn't real. But he said people got saved because the anointing of God was there. So he didn't have all, he might not have had all his eyes and dotted and T's crossed. But what he had was the power and the anointing of God. And so sometimes we feel like, oh, I've just got to get all these facts in. Well, I remember the other day I stood up and quoted a scripture that was not even the right scripture. You know what? It didn't bother me in the least. Ten years ago, I'd have probably, I'd probably moaned and groaned about it for a week. But you know what? We're just, we're just out there. We just want to give the love of God, don't we? And that's what people need. They don't need another sermon. They need the love of God. They, and only you can do that. So we see that Jesus says, I want you to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I'm going to stop there for a minute, okay? Because that's usually where we stop. That's usually where we stop. And then, so we look at it. So we look at, what is our input? It's all people groups. The pre-believers. So the raw material, so to speak, are people. So what you know before what we could do is we didn't like the raw materials we change we change suppliers of the raw materials we can't do that with people you take what God sends to you he may send you the alcoholic the drug addict the homeless the PhD the the very wealthy it doesn't matter who God sends God knows Holy Spirit is directing these people and he knows he's touched their heart I was listening to or reading some some something this week, and they were talking about how we have to look at this discipleship that we do as a as a sailboat. And he said, what you have to have in a sailboat is you have to have a boat, you have to have the sails, but you have to have wind. You have to have wind. And the wind is the Holy Spirit. He said, but the sails are us. We have to raise our sails. And if we don't raise our sails, that wind can blow anywhere it wants to go, but we're not going anywhere, right? So if we've got our sails raised and the Holy Spirit starts blowing, he's going to blow us in a direction. He's going to blow us to meet a little waitress over at Johnny's farmhouse. Or he's going to blow, blow it to meet you, for you to meet a person at a, a gas station or wherever it might be. See, we always have to keep our eyes open. God, am, are you going to give me a divine connection today? Or are we going to get grumpy? I've done it a million times. You burnt my rye toast one more time. I mean, I've said it. I mean, this is cold. Can I not just get warm toast? You know, have you ever done anything? Don't y'all look so pious? I know you've all done it. 
Well, I decided to quit doing that because that doesn't open the door for anybody to want to hear what you have to say, does it? So we, we have to say, okay, God, you're blowing my, my sails are up. Now, the sails, the two main components of the sails are prayer and the word. Don't go out there if you don't have prayer, if you don't have prayer, if you're not praying. And you've got to have the Word of God in you. It's the Word of God inside of you. So we have that input. We have the people group. Then we have the process, which is the discipleship. And that comes from the church, right? Or whatever our method is. And then our output is, are we making disciples? Are we making disciples? Well, I say most of the time, no, we're not making disciples. Let's read, let's, let's look at this, twenty-eight nineteen. Jesus says, you go into all the nations, you make disciples... And you baptize. And so what that has meant in the past was a disciple was I had 10,000 that prayed with me to receive Jesus. I've told you before, one of the greatest damages I think that has been done to the local church is the, is the altar call. Don't stone me yet. Okay? Because people come up and they repeat after me, they get a false sense of security. Now, I got saved in an altar. It can't happen. I'm not saying that. But as many times, and I've seen it happen time after time, year after year, where people will come in, they'll, they'll repeat after me, they go out and nothing changes in their life. Not a thing has changed in their life. Oh, I'm a Christian. I've been born again. All the people that we, that we have coming in the Genesis, thousands a year, and one a part of just the standard Core paperwork is, do you have any religious affiliation? Oh, yes, I do. I'm a Christian. And I'm going to tell you, I don't offend anybody. they got 15 baby mamas. They're shacking up, and they're doing everything they shouldn't be doing. They're on drugs. They're on alcohol. And they're doing everything they shouldn't be doing, and their language is through the roof. Okay? We're either going to have the goods or not have the goods, right? Okay? Y'all have heard this before. This don't look so surprised, Okay? So how are we really doing? How are we really doing? These are some of the statistics. April 2019, this is not an old statistic. The Gallup poll says in the past two decades, church membership has sharply declined 20 percentage points, where it had held steady the previous six decades. So if we were making all these disciples, why are we seeing this sharp decline? 20%, that's significant. The Gordon-Conwell Center for the Study of Global Christianity calculated the cost of baptizing one person globally in 2014 was $753,000. How did they come up with that number? They guesstimated, or the best estimate they had, of how much money is brought in through religious organizations throughout the world. And I believe in the U.S. it was somewhere around $115 billion every year is brought into the U.S. By the way, the U.S. number is a staggering $1.5 million per baptism because of all the money that comes into churches and organizations that really is, is to fund buildings, and there's nothing wrong with any of this. It's to fund salaries and all these other things, and we're not getting very much return on our investment. Our ROI is looking pretty bad. So they're saying globally, though, it's about half that. So all this money is going into religious organizations, but we're not getting the output that I showed you, you know, the, the final, we're not getting the final product that we're looking for. We're looking for disciples. Now that's people that get baptized. That doesn't even mean they're Christians. I've got numbers for that as well. The greatest increase in the number of Christians came from children born into families and not real conversions for Christ. 
So if you, if you had five babies born into your church, you had five new Christians you can add to the role, right? Wrong. That's not the way it works. But it sure looks good on the numbers. We used to belong to an organization. Every month we had to turn in numbers with our outreach, didn't we? Well, we got the pats on the back. Most churches in the U.S. that experience numeric growth are transfers from other churches and not new births into the kingdom. So when you, and I've, you, I'm, I've got some great books if, you want, if you're interested in reading. The Lord just kind of opened up my eyes to some of this stuff recently with some of these statistics. And I did a lot of research because I'm thinking, God, some of this stuff, I'm like, I don't know if I believe this. This is one and a half million dollars. That is rough. That's, that's, that's hard to imagine. But when you go back and you think and you look at the other numbers that we see, so we have to ask ourselves, have we made disciples or have we made converts? Have we made disciples? What's the difference? A convert really repents, right? A disciple says, I'm following my master. I'm going to do everything my master tells me to do. That's the difference between a convert and a, and a uh, disciple. And many people repent, but they never choose to follow the master. Many people repent, but they never choose to follow and become like Jesus. So what do we miss? In Matthew twenty-eight twenty, it says, Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you. So it's not just about going out and getting repeat after me. It's teach them now to obey everything that I've given you. Teach them to obey. And they're not saying force them to obey. He said, you teach them in such a way that they want to obey. You know, we, we, there's plenty of scripture, and I've got some references in a minute. But when I became a believer, I was talking to a friend this week. Where our stories are similar, but both of us females. We, when we became believers, it was radical because the one thing we put into place was when we read something, we wanted to do it. We read in the scripture, you got to forgive. We wanted to forgive. We didn't want to take a chance. We're in the scripture about giving. We gave. We're in the scripture about getting immorality out of your life. We got immorality out of our life. You see all this stuff that we, we said when God said it, we just said we're going to do it. And so it was easy then to, to want to be like Jesus. And I want to ask you, if God told you to do something you don't want to do, how apt are you to surrender to that? Discipleship is really about surrender. If you're living in an immoral lifestyle and the Word of God clearly says you can't do that, are you willing to change your life? If you're not, then you have to say, I'm not a disciple of Christ. It's really quiet in here. I'm just giving you scripture, okay? You know, we talk about breaking the chain. Many times the reason we're so bound up is because we've opened a door for the enemy. You know, the causeless curse doesn't come, guys. We're not sitting ducks for the devil. And, and Peter tells us, he says, you be very sober, be very alert. The devil's looking for a way that he can come into your life. So we come into church, we're all wrapped up in chains and bondages and all these, these cycles of defeat and frustration. Would you pray for me that I can be free? And then go right back out and nothing changes in our life. And we just open the door again for the enemy. Is that too hard? How are we really doing? So when we analyze the final product, these are some of the numbers that I found. And I've given this number from the pulpit many times. 70 plus percent, I think it's about 72 percent, self-identify in this country as Christians. 72 percent. Like I said, most of the people that we see, oh, I'm a Christian, I'm a Christian, I'm a Christian. You know, instead of, I, I think they're just saying, I'm not Hindu, I'm not Buddhist, I'm not nothing. I'm just, so I was right. My mama took me to church one time. I'm a, I must be a Christian. 
That means there's 327 million people in the U.S. as of 2018. Therefore, with that number, 229 million people by profession should be Christians, right? But what do the numbers really show? So there were four separate researchers, Dr. Christine Smith. These are all separate research projects. Dr. Christine Smith, David Olson, Barna Group, and Christine Wicker. And this is found in a great book if you're interested in this kind of thing. It's called The Great Evangelical Recession. It's a great book. It's really interesting. I ran across this book while we were at the beach, and I ordered it on Amazon. It wasn't 10 minutes. A friend of mine Facebooked me on Amazon from Wisconsin and said, I'm reading this book. You need to read this very same book. I said, well, that's confirmation. I mean, when does that ever happen? And I said, you don't believe this. I just ordered this book. She said, you've got to be kidding me. So there's something, you know, when things like that happen, I kind of take notice. I don't know about you. But four separate research People, statisticians, whatever you want to call them, their numbers, and there's all kind of data that shows this, say that actually those who are truly born again, evangelical Christians, somewhere seven to nine percent. Seven to nine percent. That's a lot less than 70 percent, isn't it? A lot less. And as I said a moment ago, church attendance has declined 20 percentage points when it held steady for six decades. And when churches grow in size, 75% of the church comes, growth comes from another church. Do you know that there's no other country in the world that has these kind of numbers? Do you know what the average cost per baptism is in Africa, India, and some of these other nations? I told you, one and a half million in our nation, 764 worldwide. But if you look at some specialized discipleship that are doing it the way Jesus said, their average cost of baptism is 67 cents. Because they don't have all of this other stuff that their resources are going in. They may not have billions coming in, but what they have, they're using what they have, what is, what is in their hand. And if we look at, and we're not going to look at this today, but if you look at Matthew chapter 10, you're going to see Jesus' model for discipleship. And that's exactly what he told them to do. He said, I want you to go. He said, I want you to, number one, meet their needs. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cast out devils. So we've got to be able to do that, right, if we're going to make disciples. If you meet somebody in the restaurant and they're saying, you know, I, I, we did this one. Actually, we were down at um, somewhere, uh, Red Lobster, and, and this waitress came up and we said, you know, we're getting ready to pray. Can, I mean, is there anything we can pray for you about? And she said, I was just today diagnosed with ovarian cancer. So we were able to pray with her, and she broke down and wept. So you never know, see, when God is setting you up to be able to be a conduit for him to a person that needs the love of God. I don't know anything about her life. But that's pretty horrifying news if you've ever heard the C word spoken to you. So we need to be ready. We need to be, we need to be equipped. And so in, I, I mentioned this earlier, I believe, uh, maybe it was last night, in 2005... See, we, we kind of feel like we, we've got the home team advantage because, oh, there's 70% of our nation is Christians. So we've got the advantage. What are we going to do? We're just going to boycott Disney. We're going to boycott Target. We're going to boycott all these other things. Well, let me tell you, when you're only 7% of the population, that doesn't mean a whole lot. So in 2005, the, the Baptist Association, which is about as evangelical born again as you can get, they called an end to an eight-year boycott on Disney. Because they had, they had asked their members, we're so powerful, we're going to really make an effect, and Disney's going to change the way they're doing things. They're not going to have these immoral values in there. At the end of eight years, they called an end to the boycott because Disney's profits during that eight-year time doubled. 
See, we're not as influential as we think today. So we need to change some things we're doing, don't you think? You know, it's just like we, we would never have put that product in a tank wagon or drums and sent it out to the customers. I'm sorry, it's out of spec, but you can have it. What's it going to do? It's going to ruin a lot of things down the, you know, down the chain, right? But we're doing that all the time with believers. We're doing that with believers. So what does Christianity look like based on New Testament theology? This is what it means to be a Christian, a disciple. This is what it means. Four things. Maybe more. This is what I came up with. Salvation by faith alone in Jesus. See, we, that's what it means. And, and the scripture, Romans 10, 9 and 10 says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you're going to be saved. It's not coming to the church, repeating after me, signing your name on a sheet of paper. You've got to, and it says you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. That means he is master. When he tells me to change this, I'm going to change. When he tells me to quit doing this, I'm going to quit doing it. You know, everything's not chapter and verse, right? You might be in a situation where God says, I want you out of this relationship. God's telling you to do it because it agrees with Scripture, right? So, okay, am I going to surrender my life to Jesus or am I going to say, I'm not doing that. You know, we know that's not really relevant for today. And that's what we hear a lot. And then Ephesians 2, eight says, As for us, by grace you've been saved through faith. And that is not your own doing. It is a gift of God. So we know that salvation comes only through faith in Jesus. Number two... We know that the Bible is the word of God and it's without error. See, what we tend to do is say, if I don't understand it, there must be something wrong with it. How many of you did that when you were in high school or college? I didn't understand that physical chemistry problem, so I just thought it was not truth. It didn't affect my grave, right? (laughs) That's got a big red mark there. Well, professor, I just don't think that's truth. You know, they would have just laughed me right out, wouldn't they? So that's what we do. We don't understand Scripture, so therefore it must not be truth or relevant. Second Timothy 3.15 says, Now from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. We've, taught, we've torn that Scripture apart many times. We also see in John 5.39, Jesus says, You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. He said, But they all point to me. From Genesis to Malachi, they all point to Jesus. Third is Jesus is the only way to salvation. I don't care what Oprah says. It doesn't matter what anybody else says. He is the only way to salvation. Acts 4.12 says, And there is salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven where men must be saved. And then we see in John 14.6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So he didn't say, there was no other way. And you don't need a middleman. Let me tell you, you don't need somebody interceding for you. You can intercede for God. Jesus is your intercessor, right? You don't need to go and do confession to anyone. Some of you I know came out of that kind of doctrine. There's no, you don't have to worry about that. Jesus did, he split that veil so we can go have access into the temple of God, the presence of God. And then fourthly, obedience to the, I was reading some, a side note I had here, which I can't read, by the way. I think I wrote it in tongues. But it says, obedience to teaching, obedience to the teachings of the Bible is required. Obedience is required. 
Matthew seven twenty six. Jesus says, anyone who hears these words of mine and doesn't do them, he's foolish. He's foolish. And then John eight thirty one. he said to the Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. So abiding in the word, he says, and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Now that word know is not intellect. See, this is the problem. We've had an intellectual, educational discipleship program. That's not what we need, an obedience-based program. We don't need an education-based or knowledge-based program. Many people who don't serve the Lord, who say they're Christians, can quote Scripture like you and I do. I used to work with a guy who said he was nothing, but he could quote the Bible better than most Christians I knew. See, so it's not the knowledge, it's the application, it's the obedience, it's it's the knowing, that experiential knowledge of the truth that will set you free. So it's not just quoting Scripture, although that's a good place to start, right? That'll get the brain going, right? So we need that. And then um, John eight fifty one says, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he'll never see death. Keeps my word. fourteen fifteen. if you love me, you will obey my commandments. If you love me, you will obey. If we don't obey, we're not loving Jesus, right? So we're not disciples. Isn't it just as clear as, as the hand in front of us? It's just as clear as it can be. If we love God, we're going to keep his word. If we love, you know, and, and I told you many, many times that the Lord told me years ago when I was trying to figure out everything that I don't know about that, Lord. I don't, I don't know sure I understand it. He said, just decide who you're going to believe. Just decide what you're going to believe. And I said, I think I'm going to choose to believe this word. And, you know, it began to work for me. But I didn't question everything. John fourteen twenty one it says, Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. If you're not experiencing the presence of God, I want to ask you, are you keeping his commandments? If you're not experiencing, this is a promise for God. If you're obeying his commandments, he says he's going to manifest himself to you. You're going to experience him. You're going to experience him. See, the awesome thing about God is, it's like A.W. Tozer called it prevenient grace. God initiates everything and then we respond. So God gives us, he, he says, I'm going to, if you, I'm going to give you my presence if you obey my word. So I'm here. All you have to do is see boundaries. Your sin's going to separate you. But if you obey my word, there's boundaries are down. So I'm going to, I'm going to do for you what I said I'll do if you do what I'm asking you to do. So he, he is the one who initiates everything. Then we just respond. As we feel that conviction in our heart, God initiated that. When you were a sinner, did you act like a sinner? Why are we surprised that sinners act like sinners? I don't know why we're surprised about that. That's just the way it is, right? Sinners act like sinners. So what we have to do is be compassionate, share the love of God with them. Sometimes they don't know what they don't know. They don't know what they don't know. He says in John fourteen twenty five, these things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. He said, and in, in fifteen ten, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandment and abided in His love. So, what is really happening? I mean, it's so clear, it's so easy, it's so simple, right? The problem is what flesh. The problem is we want our own way. The problem is our culture is changing so rapidly; it's not even measurable today. I want to read a couple of quotes, and this is from George Barna. In his book, Futurecast, and this was several, I think this was written around 2010 or 2011. Thinking about, just think about the culture in your day and time. Think about the culture shift in the last 10 years. 
you know, and I, I posted a little thing on Facebook that I'd gotten from somebody else that says, don't try to raise your children like you were raised because that world doesn't exist any longer. And that's the truth. That, that world is no longer in existence. But he said, America is undergoing significant changes and the nature of those changes is both complex and chaotic. The historical foundations on which our society was developed are facing some severe challenges. It's not easy to be the, Christ, the kind of Christian that Jesus longs to have as his ambassadors in this place at this time. Is that not truth? What does Psalms 11.3 say? When the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? And what's happening is we're seeing the very foundations of our faith get eroded and ridiculed and, and put aside. And, and, and what can we do when these things happen? Other, we need to pray. We got to, that's why we pray so much in this church. We have to be a house of prayer. That's why you need to be praying for your children, your grandchildren. You know, my daughter told me yesterday, we called to see what they were doing. She said, well, Zoe and Sawyer's at the lake. I said, boy, I got to get on that. So I'm on my face saying, okay, God, you know, put your warring angels around and protect them. Get rid of anybody that doesn't need to be there. I mean, this is like a routine. I go, does anybody else do that? Yes, yes. I'm just glad. I mean, I, I need for her to text me every time they do something. Two of them's getting ready to go back to college. Okay, I'm already on that. God, protect them. Put your warring angel. Get rid of whoever doesn't need to be there. Remove every obstacle. God, I, and I've, my son, I've told you, he used to tell me, he said, I'd just like to get to know the girls before you pray I'm out of my life. And I said, well, I'm sorry, but I don't want you to go through all the heartache. You know? <laughs> Sometimes God reveals things in the spirits to mamas and grandmamas. I know the, the kids are downstairs, but he reveals things to us that the kids can't see and don't want to see, right? So we've, we've kind of walked that road before. I wish someone had been praying for me with some of the crazy things I did and the decisions I made. So another one is, um, this is from Francis Schaeffer. He died in 1984, by the way. So this was written prior to 1984. He said, 60 years ago, could we have imagined that unborn children would be killed by the millions here in our own country? Or that we would have no freedom of speech when it comes to speaking of God and biblical truth in our public schools? Or that every form of sexual perversion would be promoted by the entertainment media? Or that marriage, raising children, and family life would be objects of attack. What would he say today? That's what, 34 years ago? 35 years ago? What would he say today? Change is happening at lightning speed. It is happening at lightning speed. And we have to understand that discipleship transcends the influence of culture. We have to understand that. The other thing we have to understand is we might be sent to someone who has a culture different than we do. Don't try to make them into your, change them into your culture. You can't change somebody into your culture. Jesus transcends culture. That's what's so powerful about the kingdom of God. That's why Paul said, you know, when I'm a Gentile, I'm a Gentile. When I'm with a Jew, I'm a Jew. You know, we should have that mentality. We don't violate the word of God, Right? But when we're with a Gentile, you know, we're not going to, you know, you should be in church every Sunday, every Wednesday night. You know, what's wrong with you? You're praying three hours a day. You're reading three chapters a day. What are you doing? And they're not even sure what the Bible looks like. See, we have to be careful. We, we don't want to th- push people away. We want to give them, the, we earn the right to speak into their life, and we do that with love. See, it's the goodness of God that brings men to repentance. Not beating them over the head with a Bible verse, right? No. The answer is no. All right, David Jeremiah 
And he, this was, came out of his writing, I never thought I'd see the day, culture at the crossroads. This was, I think, in 2011. He says, he never thought he would see the day when atheists would be angry, when Christians wouldn't know they were in war, when morality would be in a free fall, when the Bible would be marginalized and when the church would be irrelevant. Even 10 years ago, I never thought I would see this. 20 years ago, no way. He goes on to say, Something has happened in America that once seemed unthinkable to me. When I was a boy growing up and even a young man in school, biblical principles had a strong influence in society. I don't mean everyone was religious or even that religious, religion was dominant in everyone's thinking. Yet there was a pervasive respect for the Bible and biblical principles were evident in the shape of the culture and the mores of the people. It never occurred to me that the Bible could be marginalized and even vilified publicly as it is today. We have, and where are we going today? We have lost our influence because the churches have not or have failed to truly produce disciples. Billy Graham, I believe it was, they said that he has reached over 7 million people that made a decision for Christ. And he himself said, they asked him, well, how many of those do you think really got born again? He said, maybe 25%, which is what research has shown. Do you know how many of those were still Christians in one year of the 7 million? 6%. 6%. Because repeating after me without discipleship, without teaching people to be obedient, does not lead to a lasting relationship. See, this is a lifestyle. It's not just a project we're in. It's not a program. It's a lifestyle. And when we come to know Jesus, we've got to be willing to say, God, I give it all to you. I'll change anything you want me to change. I'll do anything you want me to do. And you know it as well as I. When you get born again, didn't your whole outlook change? You were looking through a different set of lens, weren't you? The things you used to do, you, oh, how did I do that? The things you used to watch or listen to, why, what did I see in that? Because God has so changed our heart. So are we disciples? To make disciples, we have to first be disciples. Now, I want to tell you something. You know, this is not where this message is going to end, and I hope you probably are picking up on this. You know, we're going to be doing some things as far as a full-blown discipleship program. We're going to do it a little differently than we've ever done it before. So I want you to be ready, okay? I want you to be ready, and I want you to have a heart that wants to touch people, okay? I want you to have a heart that loves people. And I want you to have a heart that's saying, I'll go wherever you tell me to go, God. You know, I used, to, I used to always think, well, that meant the nations. Go to the nations. Go to the nations. Because he called us all these ethnic groups. Well, how many ethnic groups are in this country? Is there 60-something different ethnic groups in the country? Okay, well, we've got plenty of work to do here. Is that right? We've got plenty of work to do here. When those nations are having greater success in discipleship than we're having, we need to get some missionaries coming into the U.S., we need to get that happening. But we have a lot of work to do. And, you know, we happen to be just um, confident enough to believe that a church, even this size, can change our community. Can change the school. We're going into the schools, aren't we? We're going to break cycles, generational cycles in the lives of families. Why? Because we're carrying God. It's not us. It's not that we're so great. It's because we're carrying the presence and the glory of God. The glory of God's a game changer. The glory of God is a game changer. So how do we know if we're a disciple? Number one, there's three F's. This is the F word, okay? 
Faithfulness. Number one, faithfulness. John 8, 31, Jesus said to the people who believed in him, you are truly my disciple if you remain faithful to my teaching. What does that mean? Was it last week or week before I talked about the Didache and what the apostles taught? And how they were, or maybe it was in a blog I did. I don't know, somewhere I did it. Is in a blog. Oh, here, okay. And if you go back and you read the Didache, which is the teaching of the apostles in the first century, you're going to see they taught the teachings of Jesus. They were very hard-nosed on the things of, of sin, immorality and all these other things. Faithfulness was important. So Jesus says we've got to be faithful to the word and the teachings or are we going to follow the philosophy of the world? Are we going to be more concerned about what people say or are we more concerned about what this word says? See, a gospel that does not address sin is not a true gospel. Why is that? Because it's in our best interest. It's not because God's he's not mad at us. He doesn't want to be mad at us. Jesus said, I didn't come to condemn you. I came to save you. So the, the, what's in our best interest is to address the sin because when we address the sin, then all the other promises of God become ours. Health, prosperity, peace, all that becomes ours because sin is gone. All those other things are curses of the enemy and the results of sin, right? So faithfulness is number one. Number two is fellowship. He said in John thirteen thirty five. Now, by the way, Jesus said all this, okay? He says, your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. Your love for one another. And, you know, there's so much bickering that goes on in the church. How are we showing the world that we're, I mean, that they want what we have? We're bickering and complaining and griping and backbiting and all this other thing, fighting among ourselves. We think, well, come get what I have. Even the world doesn't have some of this <laughs> that we see going on in the church, right? So fellowship. So we need to, do we love our fellow brothers and sisters? Are we looking outside of ourselves? See, that's the other thing about the discipleship that Jesus wants us to do that in Matthew 10 is about others. See, it's not about best life now. Let me tell you, you can have your best life now, but when we become so self-absorbed and self-focused that it's all about making me a better person, you know what I'm saying? You know where I'm going? Okay, well, we can. all that can happen, but Jesus said, no, I want you to go out and I want you to touch others. So discipleship, true discipleship is other-focused, right? We come into church, we get filled up, we go out and we share what we have. And in the meantime, God's going to do the work of transformation, Right? So we don't want to leave ourselves out. And number three is fruitfulness. And Jesus said again in John fifteen eight, he says, When you produce much fruit, you are my true disciples. That brings great glory to my Father. Do we possess personal fruit? Number one, the fruit of the Spirit. Is the fruit of the Spirit operative in our life? Do we have love, joy, peace, self-control, all this? Do we have that in our life? Well, that's number one, right? We want to, we want to work on that. That's the, that's the part that the Holy Spirit does. But see, here again, the Holy Spirit speaks to us. He might say, Donna, you had a wrong attitude with Terry, which I have had that time or two in my or 40 years. And I'll have to go and say, you know, and he same thing happened this morning. He got a little snippy with me, and I called him on it. But you know what he did? He apologized. Okay, no more problem. Just forget it, right? I can tell on him, right? So, do we have the fruit of the Spirit in our life? And then secondly, are we making disciples? I remember we did a lot of outreach, and we were so proud of all those numbers that we brought back to the headquarters. And we had hundreds of contacts. 
hundreds of contacts a month. We were going to prisons, the hospitals, the nursing homes. We were, and we were so proud of ourselves. But I don't know that the kingdom of God was advanced for any of it, of any significance, that is. William Booth, William Booth, he died in 1912, so this is how long ago this has been. He founded the Salvation Army, was a passionate follower of Jesus Christ. He says, on the eve of the 20th century, he gave a prophecy, and this is what he prophesied. He said, by the end of the 20th century, which is 1999, many in the church will be preaching Christianity without Christ. Forgiveness without repentance, salvation without regeneration, and heaven without hell. Has that not been a fulfilled prophetic word? What did he see at the turn of the century that made him see that? That had to be a Holy Spirit-induced prophetic word. We see it all the time, Christianity without Christ. Another gospel. Forgiveness without repentance. Absolution, but you don't have to change anything. I mean, you know, that's not relevant. Everybody's doing it. Don't worry about it, you know. And so what do we do? We have people that are following the path and they're opening their lives to the devil and they can't figure out why their lives are falling apart. And nobody has the guts to tell them because we don't want to offend anyone. That's a wrong gospel. Salvation without change. Jesus, in the Word of God, in Romans, tells us that we have been predestined to be conformed into the image of Christ. Romans 12, 1 and 2 tells us that we'll be transformed how? By the renewing of our mind in what? The Word of God. And how many, and we even have pastors now that say, I'm not so sure there is a thing called hell. I was just reading last week some of the, in, um, in some of the scriptures, and Jesus specifically talked about these people will find, be, they will be in hell with flames burning. He said that. I think he might have known what he was talking about. Do you? Let's stand, if you will. Remember, crusades start. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with crusades, but crusades started about 1700s, about the 1700s. And these are the stats that we've seen since crusades have started. Only 25% of those who make a profession actually become Christians. Only 25% of those who make a profession. Well, 25% is good, right? But what would happen if the evangelists had churches that were following up doing true discipleship? See, that's the problem. It's not the evangelist's problem. That's one of the gifts. But the problem is the church is not making disciples the way the church needs to be making. And Billy Graham said that. There was nobody coming in on the backside, filling in behind to build, to make disciples. You know, you're, you could be sitting next to someone tomorrow on your job that might have prayed a prayer after someone today. They might need you. You know who was my mentor who led me through discipleship after I got born again was Bobby Lieb. She worked on the job. She just came to work on the job that I worked on. Actually, she worked for me. She was an incredible mentor for me. And I don't know where I'd be today if she had not have been there. And had not been so bold. And she was going through her own struggles at the time, by the way. But she took me under her wing. And she taught me a lot of things about the love of God. Introduced me to Andre Crouch, too. So I'm telling you, there's, you don't know. You may be that person who is going to be that conduit for discipleship. 
Let's get our eyes off of ourselves and get them on to other people. This was the model Jesus gave in Matthew 10. He said, go out to the lost sheep. In other words, what's that saying? Let up your sails. Let the Holy Spirit wind blow you where he wants to send you. You know, knocking on doors is not usually very fruitful. Have you ever done that? <laughs> we just want to see if you're part of a local church. Oh, yeah, when's the last time you went? I went last Easter. There's anything we can pray for you about? No, I'm okay. We've done it. See, knocking on, go where the Holy Spirit wind blows us. We need to set up discipleship teams in the bottoms. Do you know that? Do you believe that? Where all the drug infestation is, where the high crime areas are. But we need to let Holy Spirit blow us in a direction so that he can send us to the other part of this was you find a person who's a person of peace and that person of peace will welcome you in then you go into that home you say invite your friends and your family and that's where we start a discipleship team and we begin to teach them the word of God and we don't have to go in with with a, a 15 part Bible study you know let's just look at Luke 10 19 you know, I've given you all the authority over the miracle working power of the enemy. What does that mean to you? What does that mean to you, Annette, to say that God's given you all the authority over the enemy? And they might say, well, I've never really thought about that before. Well, how can you use this in your life? Well, I've got the enemy doing this and I've got the enemy doing that. Well, you know, you need to be a follower of Jesus and he's going to give you this authority. So we we win that person to the Lord and we begin to mentor them. And then we say things like, okay, now how are you going to use this? How can you use this this week? This week, how can you use this in your life? Well, you know, I can use it on my job. or I'm going to get my brother over here and we're going to talk to him or my sister. You know, I've got a cousin or a, a nephew or a child that's on drugs. I'm going to take authority over that and I'm going to tell them about how much God loves them. And you see what happens. This is the way it's done in third world nations. And the average size of the church in third world nations is 14 people. You see, there's no big buildings. There's no big budgets. There's nobody that's gone to seminary. They're just people that love God. They've encountered Jesus. And that's how we make disciples. If you haven't encountered Jesus, you have nothing to share with him, with them, people, those people, (laughs) them, their people. So we need that encounter with Christ. I want to ask you, how many are willing to be a, to be a disciple maker? I want you to, I want you to, I want you to, I'm just going to ask you to make a, a public declaration. God, I, I just want to be, every, I'm, I'm making it. God, I want to be, I've repented for all the junk I've done thinking it was right. Let me tell you. When 6% of people that make a confession are a Christian a year later, we've missed it. We've missed it. We have thousands of people that go through Genesis every year. In our Salisbury, Concord, Charlotte, Stanley County. You know what? We're going to start a small group at Genesis. A discipleship group for people that want it. We've had county people say, we know what's in your tool bag. Use it all. We know what's there. Use it all. Because they know that the other things aren't working. 
We've had, we've had directors say they don't need another LPC, PhD. They need somebody who can connect their hearts. And we know you can do it. So if you're saying, God, I want to be a disciple maker, if that's such a thing. God, use me. I want you to come up and just make that public commitment to God. Boy, I'm doing it. God, help me. Help me, God. I just want to be a disciple maker. I want to win the lost. I want to get rid of self-absorption. God, I just want to touch lives. God, there may be somebody today that if I don't touch them, they may not be here tomorrow. God, help us. Help us to be other-focused. Love-focused, God-focused, Word-focused. We so need you, Lord. so need you. God, let us lift ourselves. God, we're lifting ourselves today. We're asking Holy Spirit to blow the wind of ourselves, Lord, and lead us in those places we need to go. God, we commit to be people of prayer. We know nothing happens outside of prayer. We commit to be people of the Word. God, we proclaim Your Word. We may not understand it, but we proclaim it. And all we have to really say is God is good and He loves you. And He has the answer. The other thing He said, He said, I want you to heal the sick, cast out demons, and raise the dead. God, we thank you that we have the authority and the power to do that. We desire to do that, Lord. God, you see your people. We're we're disciple makers. And God, we are disciples ourselves. You know, we started out talking about the church that Jesus built. We always look at the word church as the word ecclesia in the Greek. And it's not even the word church. That was coined later, about 300, I think, A.D. or something. But the word ecclesia means it's a gathering of people for legislative purposes. In other words, it's a gathering of people who know their authority. So we have, the Barbara, you have authority in your office. When those people come to you, you have authority. And by virtue of the fact they are submitting themselves to you, you have authority to speak into their lives. And you may not have to say, in the name of Jesus, I cast out this demon of schizophrenia. <laughs> she does. But you know what? You can go in undercover, can't you? You can go in undercover. The principle and the power, the anointing, it's, it's incredible. And sometimes you have to use wisdom. It's not always say, well, you know, the Word of God says this. But sometimes it is. You have to know when to use. You, we have See, that's the Holy Spirit blowing our sails. God, I've got my sail up. Where are you going to blow me today? Give me that wisdom. And we said that when we obey God, the word Jesus said, when you obey me, I'm going to manifest myself to you. So you can believe he's going to show up there with you in that situation, in that encounter. So God, you see your people. We're making a fresh commitment to you today, God. And we may go our separate ways. And God, we have so many different opportunities this week as we are ecclesia. God, we're taking our legislative authority that you've placed in our hands, Father. No, the gates of hell will not prevail against this group of people. So we take that authority. We run with that authority. And God, we just say, God, just show us who to go to. God, I pray for divine encounters today with every single one of us. Divine encounters, God. 
Lord, we thank you for it. We praise you, Father. And I pray let the love of God just be so over-flooding in our hearts that the people can see nothing but your love. Lord, we don't want them to see us, our flaws. We want them to see your love. It's the goodness of God that brings men to repentance. So, God, we thank you, Lord. God, when Moses said, Lord, show me your glory, what did you say? You said, I'm going to show you my goodness. God, the glory of God is the goodness of God, and we thank you, Lord, for that. Lord, we declare ourselves to be glory carriers. In Jesus' mighty name.